Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And we are extremely glad to welcome back to the fold, Anders Furs. Hello, how are you going? Congratulations on finishing your master's thesis. Thank you, thank you. Very uh, relieved and very happy to be here, to be honest. We're, we're very excited. Dying to get back into it. Yes. Brilliant. Um, today we'll be discussing Andrea Arnold's American Honey, the Roman Polanski season that's currently underway at Acme. We'll take a brief look at other film festivals happening around Melbourne um, and our picks from this month's offering at Mubi. If we might find time for me to try and talk Anders and Eloise into seeing Doctor Strange. And <laughs> first, Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals. Yeah, so Nocturnal Animals is the latest film by Tom Ford, a man who first came to prominence through his rather successful fashion label. Uh, Ford's directorial debut in 2009 was A Single Man, um, a film which I have a lot of time for, a well-received adaptation of the Christopher Isherwood novel. This time around, he's adapting Austin Wright's 1993 novel Tony and Susan. The film stars Amy Adams, Jake Gyllenhaal, Aaron Taylor-Johnson and Michael Shannon. Here's a clip of Amy Adams' character Susan talking to her assistant Alex, which handily sets up the film. You didn't sleep again, did you? You know me. I never sleep. My ex-husband used to call me a nocturnal animal. What ex-husband? I didn't know you had an ex-husband since when? A couple of years in graduate school. It's weird, I've been thinking about him a lot lately and then recently he sent me this book that he's written and it's violent and it's sad and he titled it Nocturnal Animals and he dedicated it to me. Did you love him? Yeah, I loved him. He was a writer and uh, I didn't have faith in him. I panicked and I did something horrible to him, something unforgivable, really. You left him? I left him. I left him in a brutal way. So, uh, I haven't seen Nocturnal Animals, so I'm going to throw to you both. What did you think of this, Eloise? Well, hopefully we can talk about it without giving anything away for you, Anders, or for our listeners, if you haven't seen it. But I um, absolutely adored this film. Basically, I'm just going to say it. I know it's controversial. Um, it's been kind of adored by people and absolutely um, scorned by others. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, having having spoken to a few people and seen a few reviews, and I have actually spoken through my feelings to some people who didn't respond as well as I did and... I feel like have come to some understanding with with them. So you know, I can see, I can see a little bit on either side of the fence. So what what makes it so divisive? Do you think? Well, I think what I've heard is that the ending is very obvious from the get go, and I suppose it is. Looking back, I there was a point at the film in which I thought, and it was very close to the end, where I thought, I know how it's going to end. But I basically found the the whole filmmaking process. It's kind of it's two stories told um, in tandem, um, and it's there's even a third kind of tier where so you've got present day, you've got you know the imagination of this this manuscript, and then there are several flashbacks to to Susan's past when she meets Edward. So there are three stories, and I found the way that the stories were all handled within you know within the narrative and edited together, the visual style is actually very engaging. So I didn't even have any time to think, this is very obvious, I know how it's going to end and this is a stupid story because I was just so caught up in, mm. in the way that it was all edited together. And I do think that 
because Susan sort of imagines people that she knows in this story that she's reading. And I feel like that's the way that I also respond to books sometimes. And so I was very um, on board with the way that Tom Ford went about presenting these characters. Andy, what did you think? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I'm a little mystified as to how people can be so against it. I mean, there is been a lot of accusations that Tom Ford is style over substance, but I feel like this... I mean, he, I, I loved A Single Man as well, and I thought it was mm, a wonderful yeah. story. And I think this even like, puts him even in a, in a higher tier. I mean, there's such a consistent, sustained tension under so many scenes. Mm. And the way, like you were saying, he juggles three timelines is masterful. I mean, it's, like, I think it's, so, it's incredible yeah. the way that you always know where you are, the way it could have gotten really messy. But he kind of has this thematic narrative that underpins a lot of the stuff. So you're kind of introduced in, towards the beginning to Amy Adams living this, in this kind of concrete fortress that's shot with a lot of the same cold tones that Seamus McGarvey, who's the cinematographer, used in Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. Oh my God. And with a Jeff Koons sculpture in her garden. Oh, you're just lying around. <laughs> just, yeah, that's another <laughs> If only, right? There are quite yeah. a few nice sculptures that I noticed mm. in the credits. Is like <laughs> Right, right, right. That, um, that's, that work really nicely, almost as a Greek chorus, I think, sometimes to the mm. emotional um, story that's, yeah, that's um, underplaying a lot of the, the scenes. So um, it's always difficult to make a cold character engaging, but I think Amy Adams, her face, I think, is wonderful. And the fact that she pulls the same Celine glasses yes. <laughs> on to read the manuscript. Yeah, I um, felt very on board with her and the way that she was feeling. And, you know, she was so gutted by reading this story because she imagined it. You know, there's this point at which, during a flashback scene, she says to Edward, who is her ex-husband, who's written the manuscript, you need to write something that's not you you need to write characters that aren't you and so you've got this setup where it's understandable that she would imagine that the main character in this manuscript is her husband and in fact you know it is played by Jake Gyllenhaal Mm. who is her ex-husband so that is that is set up really well I think and you've got a really firm grasp on her as a character even if she is cold I mean I felt I felt very sympathetic Mm, with her you know i mean you know uh, uh, some people are like you know she's rich she's privileged but she's very you know she's very lonely and i think it's great maybe because there are so many films that are about men who are just awful and rich and privileged and they just whinge about their lives but you know we were meant to feel sorry for them for Mm. whatever reason and i think that this was maybe doing the same thing Mm, yeah Um, and and there's nothing you know we can't just hate her off the bat for for that reason. It is strange to be able to live in such privilege while making money as an art dealer. I mean, I suppose she's married to Arnie Hammer, who seems to be very successful in business as well. Mm -hmm. But there's a wonderful line where he says, our world is a lot less painful than the real world, which he says quite early Mm -hmm. on in the film. And then, you know, within a few minutes, you're cutting to West Texas, which a whole new colour palette is introduced, new characters are introduced. Michael Shannon turns up as this fantastically grizzled cop who's on his way out. He's got time for vigilante justice, which comes to... Yes. Which, um, you know... Yeah, so that contrast to to the not real world, but, you know, having affectations from the real world is, yeah, maybe quite powerful. It's really, really interesting to see this, the, the vulnerability... And the difficult decisions she made. I mean, I don't know. Um, I thought Laura Linney's one scene mm. playing her mother was mm. just brilliant. <laughs> I really loved, and I did notice this because the editing is very engaging and usually, you know, quite fast. You'll get slow pans into into faces or or quick edits. Scenes that are told very economically, like there's almost no wasted time in this movie, which I really mm, respected. Yeah. You know, there's nothing apart from that one scene that we've all commented on where basically the entire plot is told and the script is just gets a bit clunky. The rest of yeah. it I found very economical. But those, the scene with Laura Linney and the scene where, she, you know, in the flashback where she first meets 
Edward again in New York and they have dinner. Those two dinner scenes were very similar. They were very long, just long conversations, you know, held for, for a reason and that it kind of shifted the dynamic in the film because the rest of it was so swift. Mm. But these were very intriguing conversations and they could have been cut quick quickly but they weren't and that mm. is is very interesting yeah um can i ask you what did you think of the opening credit sequence because a lot of people yeah. have, have singled that out for criticism <laughs> yeah i wanted to mention that actually i am you know i'm not sure about it and i'm really not sold on it i i loved it though i thought it So it's set up and you find out later that it's imagining of her new exhibition that's opened that she's just returning home from in the, in the first scene after the credits. Um, And I thought it was really great because, you know, it was showing these, these kind of grotesque figures dancing. Maybe you should explain what it is, I suppose, first. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically, it's just a a selection, maybe three or four naked women, um, obese naked women, in boots and military hats against a bright red background, dancing in slow motion, I think. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. With, lavishing with this the attention credits. on undulating flesh and expressions mm. and this heightened makeup. And yeah, so it's just the images of these women dancing and then after this quite long opening credit sequence, it cuts back to the gallery space and you see that these are either videos or just still photographs of, of women dancing and people, are, you know, looking. And I, I mean, I then I, I was quite into it as the credit sequence, but I feel like if I was in a gallery, I would maybe not be engaging mm-hmm. with it in quite the same way. But, you know, I mean, these are maybe this is a bit cheesy, but this is a portrait of some other nocturnal animals. And, yeah. you know, that is kind of an image throughout the film. But I loved the music. I just want to say when it started, it's um, the music is by a composer who has worked with Tom Ford before, Abel Korzanowski. And it reminded me very much of Mika Levy's score for Under the Skin. Just yes. those, you know, yeah, those yeah, kind cool. of atonal strains and that really mm-hmm. slow, you know, unsettling something is just not right here sensation. And I really... I was just on board with it almost immediately, Mm. you know, even though the images were maybe not enticing, although I did find them very engaging, the score got me on board. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a big part of the underlying tension that I thought really charged the whole film so well. Yeah. Yeah, and it was lovely to see Isla Fisher turn up as well, although I did think she was Amy Adams for quite a while, I must admit. (laughs) Me too, me too. (laughs) She's imagining herself in this? Well, she was. Yeah, I think she she is imagining herself. She's imagining herself and her daughter, um, it's not the same actor that plays the daughter in the in the novel kind of segment, but they look very similar. And so she's imagining, you know, that it is her and it is happening to her. And I found that very powerful. Mm. So it sounds like there's a lot of playing around with expectations and reality and the way we interpret the world. Is that what the kind of stuff that's going on here? Yeah, I yeah, I guess so. There's this moment and it's maybe quite laughable. I mean, people were laughing at the screening that we went to in moments when maybe I wouldn't be laughing. But there's this moment where she goes into the art the art gallery, Amy Adams goes into the art gallery she works at. And she and Jenna Malone, who I loved in this film, she was basically playing the exact <laughs> same bitchy character that she played in Neon Demon. Yeah. And in Neon Demon, I hated it and I didn't get it and I found it so fake. <laughs> but she was doing exactly the same thing in this movie and I loved it. So maybe now I've got this new appreciation for Jenna Malone and what she can bring <laughs> to roles. It was just fascinating. But anyway, they walk past. So Jenna Malone is her assistant or, or something more significant. But they walk past this just black 
canvas with revenge on it, you know, mm, kind of written. Yes. And it's so obvious that what is happening, that revenge is a theme in this film. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But Amy Adams is like, oh, is that new? You know, what's... And, and Jenna Malone says, oh, it's been there for a while. You know, we bought it, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, it's a very kind of heavy-handed commentary. <laughs> I love that. But it was, you know, it's quite funny. So yeah. that is one of oh. the one of the themes is, you know, this awful stuff that's happening to you is maybe staring at you in the face, but mm. you you can't, you don't get it. Mm. And, I mean, subtlety is overrated, I think, uh, on screen, mm. as a general comment. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Quote from, An- quote of the year <laughs> from Anders, subtlety is overrated. Um, I think so, but I think there are very, very engaging moments that will just subtly affect you in this film. I, I love it, and I love a single man. I didn't, love it immediately when I saw a single man for the first time. I I fell completely in love with it after I read Christopher Isherwood's short novel because I knew I could see what Tom Ford was doing with the adaptation and was completely yeah. respecting the book. Yeah. In some ways I thought the movie didn't quite work, but when I saw what he'd done with the book, I, I then kind of stepped back and said, okay, well, this is very masterful. So I, you know, I really do respect him as a filmmaker. And also as a designer and mm, um, makeup, a manufacturer of lipsticks in particular. My lipstick collection basically is thanks to Tom Ford. <laughs> I'm just going to mention that as many times as possible. But you know, he's a divine creator, I think, mm. an artist. So yeah. awesome. Yeah, definitely. Well worth seeing. So that's oh, out Thursday, November 10th, by Universal Pictures. So national release. Check it out. It's a business opportunity. We go door to door, we sell magazines. We explore like America, we party. Come with us. Got anybody who's gonna miss you? Not really. Okay, good. You're hired. Uh, Andrew Arnold's latest feature, American Honey, tells the story of disillusioned teenager Star, played by newcomer Sasha Lane, who leaves her life in Florida to join a, a crew of magazine sellers, led by Riley Keough's tough-as-nails ringleader Crystal and the star seller Jake, played by Shia LaBeouf. This film um, becomes a road movie which takes her across the United States and the viewer follows over a period of about two, over two hours as we manage to see Star growing up and interacting with people. Eloise, did you have a big impression from American Honey? I really liked this movie. I didn't like it, you know, it's two hours and 47 minutes long and I didn't like it for the full, for its full length. Um, I think I knew very little about it when I went in to see it. It's handheld camera the whole time and I, you know, I find that sometimes very hard to deal with and I didn't enjoy every single moment of it that was very in your face, basically. But there is a reason, you know, there's an aesthetic and narrative commentary reason why this is a handheld camera and it's necessary in order to tell Star's story and to tell the story of these youths across America. I was really absorbed by it the whole time and I think that it's definitely worth seeing in a cinema. I feel like... The, the length and also the style is maybe something that would discourage you from watching for the whole time if you were watching this mm-hmm. at home. And I didn't feel the time pass necessarily. Even though I didn't enjoy every moment of it, I didn't feel the time pass. Anders, did it leave a similar impression on you? Um, it did. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of struggling with my response to this film in many ways. Um, I thought it was... It, it is long. It is a lengthy film. And I thought it was quite repetitive which is not necessarily a bad thing um and i did think there were some particularly when the narrative 
when it sort of went got back to its narrative, it fell a bit too maybe on the nose. There was Forced. a bit of. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But there are some really beautiful scenes as well, and some absolutely stunning imagery about small town American life. These so this group of young uh, people go around selling magazines door to door and the bulk of the, or quite a substantial amount of this movie is spent in their somewhat claustrophobic minivan. And I felt like every few minutes they would be singing along to a new song. I found that really interesting. Like you can't sort of overstate how many contemporary American pop songs and hip hop songs have been like put into this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'd say Great energy. Yeah, at least an hour of the movie is people singing and dancing. I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it'll be bored, but I thought it was very, that stuff was really an interesting insight into how like popular music functions in a society, you know, how people respond to it like these people really they're sort of down on their luck they're they're not making any money from selling magazines as they all say like who buys magazines these days so what if they what are they left with they're left with you know making these small moments of out of the you know american popular culture so that kind of stuff i really really dug well just sticking together like you 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 know at some points you think star is having such a horrible time with these people Mm. why doesn't she leave but it's very obvious that she doesn't leave because she's got some kind of at least mateship or sense of belonging even though they're constantly moving across the country she's got a sense of belonging in this van space if she left she would be completely disenfranchised and just have nowhere to go and nothing to do and and no identity but with these people she has some some semblance of a family yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I found her excruciatingly annoying for a, quite a large part of the film. <laughs> oh, really? She has zero curiosity, no anything or anyone. Almost nobody's names are ever used in this film. She interacts with people. In, she's quite interesting. Do you mean Star? Star, okay, yes. Okay, yep. Yeah, so she has these quite interesting interactions with people, but she never asks their name. You never really learn any backstory about anybody. She doesn't have any desire to be good at her job. Well, you know, mm. she's terrible, in fact, like, you know, absolutely awful. But that doesn't really matter because she's... And because despite all this, she can't help but interact with these people and she can't help but learn and change and grow. Mm. There were two films that this reminded me of, and one was um, Spring Breakers in this quite observational way of yep. um, mm-hmm. just looking at young people in America, in modern America, and mm-hmm. how they're um, making you know headway. And also Certain Women, um, which we talked about recently, mm. in the way that we look at this, these unusual back parts of America that you'd hardly ever see, but you look at it as not as a tourist. It's never like lavishing attention on the landscape. Like, and Certain Women does the same thing. It just shows you the landscape, you know, a beautiful canyon or mountains or whatever, the exact, with the exact same attention that you would see for a gas station. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of puts you in her shoes in a really good way and I thought the 137 to 1 ratio was a really unusual thing that made it look a little like home movies that was um, supported by the editing and I, I found they often cut mid-song or mid, yeah, yeah. mid-scene in a way that is almost like somebody's remembering it and wanting to kind of move on to the next thing that they did or the next thing story that they want to tell yeah I found that really interesting there were some scenes that went on for a very long time and you, you felt them being repetitive felt claustrophobic and you wanted to get out but there were some scenes where it cut mid-conversation or mid-song as you say onto something else and changed the tempo and that was really interesting what mm. I was doing. 
Yeah, yeah. Particularly the music choices as well, which were mm. you know a very obvious emotional Greek chorus. Mm. <laughs> you know, with the um, we found love in a hopeless place song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. the Rihanna. See, Rihanna yeah. I love oh, this. Lots this of is such a thing now in cinema. It seems to be people getting together singing to Rihanna, um, <laughs> and there's a lot of that in this movie, mm. like totally. multiple times. Yeah, multiple which times. Is awesome. Juicy J. I was listening to yes. Juicy J with a friend yesterday, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There was lots lots of music in here that was it's very easy to get into. Yeah, the Ravenette song, When They're Sitting mm, on the Roof mm. of the Car. Man, that's sublime. It's yeah. beautiful. I, it felt to me like, yeah, this sort of narrative was established and then we sort of diverted to this, you know, quite beautiful, nice, meandering road movie mm. observational thing. And then towards the end, it was like, oh, now we've got to get back on to the narrative rails yeah. um so I, I and i really didn't like that scene where she uh goes into that um impoverished house and like oh, there's yeah. the kids oh i know and they're like oh my god how bad is poverty guys yeah. and then she's so bad and then she goes and buys some groceries <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. out of the kindness of her heart i found that that, that like, was beating us over the head yeah. a bit <laughs> but all of that stuff notwithstanding what lets it down is that it's it's got this weird tension between being piece of almost video art or you know being a standard sort of road trip movie and i think when it yeah when it sort of forgets about the story i guess this subtlety is overrated story is overrated (laughs) um yeah when it forgets about the story i really connected with it yeah Yeah. so i thought i found those both those things that you critique just then like kind of essential to the underpinning of the way that everything is transactional i mean it's reinforced over and over again Mm -hmm. and so she is like you can't just have a relationship with a person it has to be a transaction and I thought that was really yeah. beautiful, the way that the only time that she was really kind of at peace was when she was interacting with small animals. And these insects turn lots up all the time. Oh, the insects. Lots of insects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. She rescues looking... a bee from the swimming pool. Oh, yeah, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. I mean, I found that if, as clunky or as obvious as any of those other things you talked about. But I also found it like part of Essential. the way that we have to understand mm. her through not her opening up or talking, because she doesn't really talk a whole lot. I mean, it's more to do with interactions or her responses or mm. her face. I mean, she's got a fantastic face. Yeah, yeah. Like, mm. she, she seemed to age through the film. Like, at the beginning, she got this kind of, like, flawless skin. Maybe it was the Florida sunshine that compared to, <laughs> you know, the Iowa and the Dakotas and all these other places yeah. that they wound up. But there's there's a real... I uh, really like the energy of the film from the ensemble. And yes, my understanding yeah. is they... What they actually did this road trip and filmed along the and way. They didn't know where they were going, and it was yeah. all very spontaneous and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I yeah. thought that really worked. Like mm. they were all, uh, the acting was I thought incredible. From yeah. maybe not so much Shia LaBeouf actually, but mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, as an ensemble, I think that was great. I just want to raise something with you guys, and this is yeah. just a like a germ of a thought. So I don't really know how I'm going to express it, and maybe you'll think I'm being a bit cliched but in, there's an early scene you know where show at the beginning she's sat up and she's looking after her two siblings or like you know her two half siblings maybe we don't know um because the mm. the father who is at their house we don't know who he is really is he her father or just some dead shit anyway there's these really beautiful shots of their first home that they're that she's living in and you know there are shots of the wall with photographs of far off places so you get this idea that she's you know she's stuck but she's dreaming of bigger things and she wants to get out of her her rut and then there's a shot of probably her younger sister's like red glittery shoes and i couldn't (laughs) help it but you see red glittery (laughs) shoes and i was like holy shit 
is this a reference to the Wizard of Oz? And then there's all of these conversations later about dreams and what her dreams are and, like, is this a dreamlike experience? Mm. Does she have any dreams? Is she stuck? What's happening? She's going on this road movie. She's being liberated to by... To Kansas. To Kansas. She's being liberated by exactly all of these other characters that come into her life, come in, mm. but they don't really commit. You know, they're just helping her along the way. And then she gets to this end point and the movie ends. It's a long a road. I just, I thought that was all really great and beautiful and I loved it. And I was like, is she this Dorothy figure that is just trying to get a better life for herself? I don't know. I, I really want to think about this some more, but anyway, I just had to. Yeah. Inter- interesting point. Although because there is a lot of, there's a lot of actually, they do use the word dreams a lot and she mm. doesn't yeah. know yeah. what, what her dreams are and no one else does. And she, I just yeah. really liked it. She does. I guess the key of the key difference would be interesting. She doesn't really want to go home, does she? But all of she does, she wants to go to this vision of what her home would be. But then also the very per- first person she talks to on the bus talks about her myth and her connection to Darth Vader. Oh, yeah, Darth Vader. Mm. So that's like another yeah, myth. Yeah, Everybody yeah, has right. their own myth. So the, I feel like it's... Like, I think the, the pop culture thing is really interesting yeah, in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like how it sort of traces how people use, uh, particularly Americans, use American popular culture as a way to interpret the world and their experiences. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, if you have dreams and you're talking about escapism, then that's one of the first things that's going to come to a lot of people's minds, I think, particularly if they haven't had a chance to travel very much or, and they're mainly engaging with the world via media. Mm. Yeah, lots to talk about. Yeah. American yeah, Honey. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought, intriguing, yeah. intriguing film. It was very well received. Then, you know, it became this big, big thing that everyone needed to see and it won the jury prize at Cannes. So it's been very mm. well received. And I think not everyone loves it, but it's so worth just seeing to know what mm. this is about. Yeah, and um, it's totally unlike Andrea Arnold's other films. I'm not sure if you've seen any of those, mm. but some mm. of the other films she's had, nothing at all yeah. like this. The style is totally different, the subject matter, the stories that she wants to tell. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so really its own thing. And I think a very, if nothing else, it's a really important subject matter, I think, particularly yeah, when you totally. think about America now. Mm. It's uncompromising in how it's dealing with contemporary America, I guess. Mm. Yeah, definitely a cinema film. Mm, so definitely. American Honey is out now, thanks in, to Universal Pictures? Yes, in wide release. Mm. Hopefully wide release. I think so. Okay. Yeah. From a film about outsiders in modern America to a literal outsider from modern America, Roman Polanski. He's currently the focus of a retrospective season at Acme in Federation Square. Eloise Anders and I just caught his 1966 film Cul-de-sac, which is also screening on November 10th. Eloise, tell us about Cul-de-sac. So Cul-de-sac is an absurdist hostage comedy drama set in an isolated (laughs) castle and grounds in Northumberland in England. So as it opens, sort of over the credits, two men who we don't really know are pushing a broken down car along a road. And we learn eventually that they're 
gangsters, I guess. You know, it's never kind of explicitly said, but they're very much the gangster character, Albie, and the, the key character here, the thuggish, energetic Dickie, played by Lionel Stander, who's got this fantastic voice. Dickie comes to this castle and he isolates and traps married couple George, played by Donald Pleasance, and Teresa, played by Francoise Dorliac, in their, their home, so they live there alone. Um, now, this film has really exquisite cinematography by Gil Taylor and music by Christoph Kameda, so it's a very, very important and really stunning film, I think. And just notably, it was released in the United States on the 7th of November, 1966, so exactly 50 years ago today. So wow. quite, you know, important that we're talking about it. Happy sesquicentenary. Yes. Oh, wow. As we are. Anyway, Anders, how did you go with cul-de-sac? Well, I'd, <laughs> I went into this knowing absolutely nothing about it beyond the fact that it was a Roman Polanski film. I, it was surprisingly hilarious and I thought quite a, maybe quite a bitter look at masculinity and we can unpack the gender politics of it because it's quite fascinating I think and the film's all about that stuff I think it's a very intriguing mixture of physical and verbal comedy basically you have Donald Pleasance and this guy Lionel Stander playing two polar opposites you have the sort of effete intellectual and this sort of mob guy uh, who seems to be straight out of a 1940s crime drama. So it's such a simple but sort of smart way to make a movie. I think you come up with this like binary opposition and then play out the collision between these two types of character. Totally. In a single set as well, you know, that's kind yes. of a really great way yes. to explore ideas is to put everyone in this claustrophobic environment. In the uh, the fortress, as he <laughs> refers to it, right? He's get out of my and then he tra- he can't quite he can't quite call it his home because it's this bizarre rundown castle. So it calls it a fortress. Yeah. yeah, on it yeah, it's very yeah. Yeah, so no, I thought it was great. But yeah, what did you think of what Polanski's trying to get at here in terms of masculinity and male gender identities? Well, I took it to be more a comment on the English state of mind. I mean, this came okay. after his previous British film, um, Repulsion, so which I, and I find this a really bizarre thing to move to after Repulsion. I mean, it seems like there's this masculinity that belongs to... American popular culture mm, and mm. That he, that's kind of Lionel Standard embodies that brilliantly I mean oh, he's yeah, like, incredible he's like he's, he's such a strange person at first it, you know it reminded me like you were saying Straw Dogs or a film maybe yes. not quite like Funny Games yeah. so something like that where this is like a home invasion sort of story but it's all about manners it's, he hardly ever has to use force at all it's just like I'm going to do this and you're going to deal with it because you're British you can't really look at that stuff without looking at Polanski himself in a way and the way that he's related to people over his lifetime that possibly would be explaining why he was given the freedom to make such a bizarre film. I mean, it's not really... It's it must is been hard to, uncharacterizable, isn't it? Yeah, it's not really... It's like a it's like comedy, it's like a drama, it's like a thriller. Yeah, I, I mean... It could be made today. Yeah, so it is. It's like a home invasion film. I'd seen this before, but I remembered very little. I remember I saw it about five years ago and I was trying to focus on how Polanski uses sound and music to kind of build his worlds and build his the tension within all of his narratives. Um, and so I remember, the, you know, the soundtrack is kind of incredible and the way that the silence and the wind and the water... Yeah these household sounds of tap stripping and clocks ticking are, are all used and, and chickens, chickens clucking, chickens chickens clucking, clucking. totally. Um, how they're all used and laid upon each other within the scenes. And so I remember it for that reason, but it was much funnier than I remember it. And I thought it's almost has these 
these elements and maybe Polanski has tried to borrow from the screwball comedy tradition of, you know, having just these people, these people show up at this house out of nowhere and unannounced and just come in and, and disrupt yeah. the balance of whatever's going on. And yeah. they're totally unexpected. And obviously you've got the character of Dickie who is there and he's not meant, you know, no one's meant to announce that he's in fact a gangster who's holding them hostage. So he just kind of, takes on this role of the the garden keeper. So there are like maybe two or three occasions where, yeah, people just show up unannounced and, and disrupt it's, the style and it becomes very funny. It's almost just like this screwball comedy. Yeah, comedy yes, yeah. Yes, Absolutely. Series. And very like, it's so funny how like, and very clever how he reverses the power relationships within these, this group of people, you know, suddenly the mobsters having to pretend to be like the butler, you know, suddenly he's gone from being in control of the situation to not quite being in control of the situation. I just thought, yeah, it was a very clever lesson in sort of comedic escalation. I mean, on top of that, you know, what it means and, and what it's doing, the the visual style of this film is just stunning. I mean, you know, Roman Polanski can lay out a depth of field totally mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. that he uses his characters uses perspective the way that he blocks his his frames is excellent and i was i was never disappointed by anything in this film i was just constantly impressed and we yeah we saw it at acme so we saw it on the big screen it was it was very impressive yeah it was great totally recommend if, yeah. if you can get how, a chance to see it. How did it sit with you compared to other Polanski films you've seen, like Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby, Knife in the Water? In terms of single location filmmaking, though, I did think of uh, The Ghost Rider because uh, now that's a wonderful late Polanski film. Yeah. And that's pretty much all that. takes place. Uh, in the isolated yeah, house in the in island. That, he really, he's very good at composing images. Like the the final image of, of um, The Ghost Rider is one of my all-time favourite yes. final ending images mm, yeah. and the final image here was quite hilarious in its own way as well what, what about you Andy did you see any resonances uh, not so much no um the, I did find it really interesting that the symbolism he was using the fact that it was an Englishman's home is his castle the fact that it's on an island this is um fact there's this uh George who played by Donald Pleasance has left business and decided to pursue this Life of Riley, as he describes it, you know, where he's just making art and living with this gorgeous, you know, twenty-something French wife who's really bored and yeah. <laughs> struggling to, you know, to live up to you know, her role in his dream that he seems to have created, which I haven't seen Polanski do a lot of. I mean, I really like his other stuff, but I've always thought of him as somebody who was really who managed to get great collaborators as well, as well as having his good, you know, great visual style. He always had great cinematographers. He worked with mm. excellent screenwriters. He had his pick of the actors of the day. So, but I also found that he's always occupied the role of an outsider being from you know, Europe and then making these films in the UK and then in the US. And so he seems to be able to see parts of culture that um, other people don't so much. He seems to hold nothing sacred as well, which I think is also really important if you're going to go mm. into another culture and start making films about their, their lifestyle. But um, you've seen more Polanski, I believe, than probably both of the Eloise. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen everything by Polanski. I have seen a lot and I do really, you know, love the way that he makes films and can pa- paint a portrait of, of a moment or a character. And th- I mean, the only thing that I really thought of, I mean, apart from Repulsion, which I just think is excellent and I can't get enough of, I thought, and this is maybe a little bit um, cursory, but the glasses, this is the two people wear glasses in 
this film in mm. cul-de-sac. At least two. Albie, who is one of the gangsters, and George wears glasses. And it's a big deal. And then there's this moment where they kind of go outside and it's in the dark and George's glasses fall off and then he steps on Albie's glasses and um, it becomes this really big deal. And I just kept thinking of the pair of glasses that is kind of this red herring in Chinatown and mm. I thought is there a reason yeah. why Polanski is using glasses as mm. the something to help us see and you know I mean he uses a lot of camera lenses as well in, in Chinatown specifically mm. um, and so that was just a really interesting thing for me and I'll, I want to go back to visit his other films again to, to see what was going on. Also there's interest in um uh, actually, now that we're talking about Chinatown, voyeurism. The interest mm. in voyeurism. So, like, particularly for the... F- before this film sets up, we follow the gangster as he, like, watches through the reeds as the yes. French yep. woman and uh, the sort of hunky dude from across the lake have a... It's suggested that they've um, just... They're lying in the sand naked. Other. Yeah, they're lying... Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then he sort of stumbles up to the house and he sort of watches their, the interactions mm. of this family play out and, you know, while trying to stay quiet and sort of hilariously failing to do that. Maybe yeah, because while, Chinatown's very much interested in that as well. While looking through a hole in, in the door in the shape of a cross. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when, when that, that couple have just come back from shrimping... Yeah, shrimp, shrimping. On well, the fact that you see the uh, word cul-de-sac over the longest straightest road you've probably ever seen. Well, that was uh, I was expecting this yeah. him to because I knew nothing about this film. I was expecting him to um, yeah stumble upon a cul-de-sac. There, there was no cul-de-sac in this film. Yeah, I mean it's a metaphorical cul-de-sac, right? <laughs> Very <laughs> metaphorical. Not an image of perfection at all. No. <laughs> but yeah, great film. Yep. Loved it. Mm-hmm. So Acme's Polanski season runs until November 22nd, but if by some bizarre circumstance you're not interested in films directed by Roman Polanski or are unable to make the screenings, you could also make it to a grab bag of cutting-edge films showing at the Connect Film Festival at the Loop Bar on Myers Place in the city, which is running on November 10th. You can find out more at looponline.com.au. Also, the Lawn Film Festival is screening some new Australian releases, including <coughs> Innuendo. Innuendo, the film uh, co-starring Mr Andy Hazel himself. Hotel Pool Gardy and Girl Asleep, which we, um, which we reviewed on episode 9 of Cultural Capital. Um, finally, the German Film Festival is kicking off on November 15 and it has an awful lot of titles. Just one more thing I'm going to mention. You could also, up until mid-December, go spend your Wednesday nights at Melbourne Cinematheque. Still has oh, yeah. a program going through to the end of the year, and that's something else to do at Acme. Can you give us some titles that might be coming <clears throat> up sometime soon on Melbourne Cinematheque? There are some Ho Haasien films oh, right. um, oh, cool. playing at the moment, and yeah. coming up after that, some Haran Faroqi. Really great chance to see some Haran Faroqi works, and some Eric von Stroheim films oh, to good. wrap up the year. Nice. Mm. If you decide not to leave the house, you could also watch films on movie. Anders, is there anything yes. that piqued your interest on the current selection of films? Well, look, I chose uh, one film for purely pragmatic reasons because it lasts 15 minutes okay. um, and I didn't have much free time. But uh, it's called The Love Life of the Octopus by Jean Pont Lever and Genevieve Hamon. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's this surreal, quite uncomfortable, and at times veering into body horror documentary about octopuses. Octopuses? Octopi? Uh, The octopus. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, the first half of this short film follows an octopus sort of sliding around a beach in the water, etc., as the narrator sort of discusses it in these very grandiose terms. At one point he uh, announces, octopus, 
cephalopod, horrifying animal. <laughs> and and you see this like octopus really oozing around. It's, it's gross. Anyway, <laughs> the second half is devoted to like this watching a male and female octopus mating. You see tentacles and orifices. You see thousands of small eggs hatching. Um, and it's all set to this really, really uncomfortable electronica score. So, look, it's only 15 minutes, but it's weird, uncomfortable, and very weirdly entrancing. And it sounds like Parchan Uk has, has based his entire filmography on this film as well. <laughs> yes, wild rod. Eloise? Well, quite predictably, I am just going to mention two titles that I'm very excited to see. I haven't seen either of them, but I'm quite keen to see Black Magic, a 1944 nine film directed by Gregory Ratoff and Orson Welles. I know nothing about this film except for that I'm really excited to see it because who doesn't love Orson Welles? Mm. Full stop. Yeah. Um, and I'm also excited to see a silent film called The Battle of the Sexes from 1928 oh, by oh, D.W. Yes. Griffith. Griffith. Yes. And I haven't seen it. You know, the synopsis on movie is a real estate salesman leaves his family for a blonde gold digger who is scheming with her gangster boyfriend to swindle her new sugar daddy. Now, if that's not like the greatest collection of phrases, then <laughs> I don't know what is. But it stars Belle Bennett, who... I have only seen before once, I believe, in the silent version of Stella Dallas. So I'm excited to check that one out. Um, And intriguingly, that's a remake of, I think he made it in 1914 as a silent film with Lillian Gish. Really? Yeah, as a drama. And this is a screwball comedy on the same material. Great. Great. Very exciting. Um, so for the movie, I actually did watch two films, and I don't even know where to start with the first one, which is only available for two more days, if you're listening to this, on the day that we release this podcast, which is November 7. Um, and that's The Passionate Friends, which we talked about a couple of I saw that. Ago. I just loved and adored it. It was so, so engaging and so stylish and so heartbreaking. And yeah. But I won't go into it too much here because you probably won't have a chance to watch it. Um, but I will talk about a film called I Am Not a Hipster. Which is much, much better than the title would suggest. It's directed by Dustin Cretton, who um, is best known for turning his 2008 short film Short Turn 12 into a 2013 feature of the same name. It's set in house parties and at small gigs in this San Diego creative community in which Dominic Bogart plays a disaffected songwriter who's released one acclaimed album that was fueled by the grief from his mother dying and everybody around him loves and is obsessed with this album. Um, but he's really, really over it and he hates talking about it and thinking about it. But his best friend is also his manager or his self-proclaimed manager, who's this very enthusiastic Latino guy played by Alvaro Orlando, who is actually responsible for most of the comedy in the film. So it, could, it seems like it's going to be quite a depressing navel-gazing film about how hard it is to be a white guy making music in America. But it actually is much more about grief and about processing stuff. And most of the comedy comes from the three sisters of his who turn up to San Diego to spread the ashes of their mother in a nearby beach. And so it's he's there's every so often it's a bit like once in that there will be these Elliot Smith style shins ish songs that will appear, but mainly it's just about this really great um, collective of naturalistic actors giving these great performances. A lot of whom turned up in the original short um, film version of Short Turn Twelve. Um, there's a lot of you know excellent comedy that comes in here. It's all very naturalistic. It was shot in I think it's set over a week in San Diego and was all shot on a red camera and it feels like it was filmed in about the week as well. Um, and it's definitely something that I would recommend as being this sort of film that you can't really see anywhere else. I mean, it's very hard to find it. It was shown at a few film festivals, mm. and you can see it for another 26, 27 days on Mubi. So. So what's really great about Mubi, I think, is that like there are films that only only screen at festivals, you know, a scant few festivals around the world that might show up. So it's a, yeah, that is a good recommendation. Mm, I think yeah. so. Um, Dominic cool. Bogart, who's the big star of this, is also turning up in Birth of a Nation. So oh, I imagine yeah. we'll be talking about him and seeing him soon. Great. Yeah. 
Well, thanks, cool. Anders, for coming back. Yeah, Great to so chat to with you again. Thank you for welcoming me back into the fold. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> of course. And we'll chat to you next time, yeah, I guess. In a couple of weeks. Yes. Thanks a lot for listening to the end of episode 13 of Cultural Capital. Thank you.